Okay. It is a privilege. Do I need to get the bagpipes to play? No, I know, but shh. Just kidding. Um, it's great. We're going to jump in straight away for, for time's sake this morning and just because we need to look at this text and we need to, to look at it all the way through the end as we see it be applied to our life. So I'm going to say a prayer right now and then we'll jump into God's Word together. Father, would you help us? Oh Lord, would you help us to, to see the connection we have with Peter here but not to fixate on Peter and that you'd show us Jesus and that we would believe who he is. We worship him because of who he is. And I pray you'd intersect each of us right where we are in our faith or in our doubt. Right where we are, would you intersect us by your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So over the last few weeks, I have gone through a leadership tool. Maybe a lot of you have probably done this. I'm not sure. But StrengthsFinder. Anybody done StrengthsFinder? It's a leadership tool. StrengthsFinder is put out by Gallup, and there's 34 different, they call them themes, all right? And these themes are, are all over the map. Things like discipline or empathy or being analytical or strategic or focus. Just, just 34 different qualities or themes. And what StrengthsFinder does is it puts the participant through a series of questions and your job is to give a gut answer. Don't think too long, but what's your gut answer? Is this more sound like you or your preferences, or does this more sound like you? Which is it? Just click the button and keep moving. Well, at the end of that little bit of a tool, it comes back to you and says, of the 34 themes, here are your top five strengths, right? And the rest of them are areas for you to navigate, but work on your strengths. Use them where God's placed you because you're uniquely you. You have these things about you, but also be aware where you're weaker and surround yourself with others and with plans to navigate those things. Well, here's my question. Why are there only 34? Right? I mean, why not like a bajillion? Well, and the reason is pretty simple. We are similar people, aren't we? We're not identical. But when you look at humanity made in God's image, there are things that we are similar in how we, we operate. Personality tests will reveal just certain amounts of options and say somewhere inside of these categories is probably where you fit like many other people because we're similar. Well, when we study the Bible, without doubt, I'm sure you have found, if you're a student of the scriptures, that there's a character, a few characters. You say, man, I seem rather similar to that one. And maybe there's going to be half of us in the room go, Peter is my guy. Others of you may not so much, but th I think all of us at one level or another, we, we can relate to Peter. Peter is this man of zeal and passion. And what I love about Peter is it would just erupt inside of him. My favorite description of Peter is in Mark chapter 9, when Jesus is transfigured up on the mountain, and Moses and Elijah are there, and Peter sees this. And Peter, everybody's terrified. Peter's freaking out also, but he says this. He says, Jesus, like, can we make three tents? Like one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Let's make this keep lasting. Here's what Mark says, though, which makes me laugh every time I read it. Chapter 9, verse 6 of the Gospel of Mark. For Peter did not know what to say because they were all terrified. I mean, I love that about Peter. When he does not know what to say, what does he do? Say something. He's, he's always saying something when he doesn't know what to say. Maybe that connects with you, but it's Peter. Because he had so much passion to speak, that in Matthew 16, he's the one that confesses who Jesus is. 
But shortly thereafter, when Jesus says, I'm going to go suffer and die, Peter says, no, you're not, not on my watch. I'm going to keep that from happening. And Jesus says, get behind me. It's Peter who will deny Jesus altogether out of fear when Jesus is already be beginning to undergo the trial that's going to lead to his, his crucifixion. It's Peter who, even though he knew that Jews and Gentiles alike could be one in Christ, when he was sitting with his Gentile brothers at the lunch table, right? And he's enjoying the company he has with these Gentile brothers. Well, he looks up and out the door, he sees the Jewish entourage come in from the Jerusalem church. And he jumps up with his lunch tray and goes and sits with his Jewish pals. And the Apostle Paul in Galatians 2 gets rather angry and says, you're living out of step with the gospel and you know it. It's Peter who feared people, but like him, such that he would act so inconsistently. There's something about Peter that is relatable. And as we look at this text, this may be one of the greatest stories in the New Testament where we can really relate to one of the characters. I mean, we see Peter's amazing faith here. We see his immediate doubt here. We, we, we see him need Jesus because he acted boldly. And then we see him worship when Jesus rescues him. We have much to relate to here. I use that as an intro to get us into the text to then say this. This passage is not about Peter. We want it to be because we can relate to Peter, but this text is all about who Jesus is and the Jesus that Peter was relating to. And so I want to ask you as you read, while you will connect to Peter, would we see who Jesus is? Because this is a critical text in the Gospel of Matthew where after this point, who Jesus is, is a bit different in what people declare about him, okay? So let's stand together, and I will read to you from Matthew 14, and I'll read beginning in verse 22 to the end of the chapter. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when he got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And when they crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. This is the word of God. Amen. Please be seated. So the Gospel of Matthew is picking up momentum. I like momentum, and sometimes it's just explicit that that's what's happening in the scene, or it's what's happening in the mind of the, of the Gospel author. 
Let me show you that how much action this text has in it, so much urgency attached to it. Three times in this passage, the word immediately is used. Matthew didn't have to tell it that way, but that's how he tells it. And each time, the word immediately describes an action of Jesus. So we have it in verse 22. Immediately he made his disciples get in the boat. Verse 27, as he walked on the water and got close, immediately Jesus spoke to them. Verse 31, after Peter's faith was obstructed by his doubt, immediately Jesus reached out his hand. You can sense the way it's written that Jesus is orchestrating the kingdom of heaven coming down to earth in a very earthy way, a gritty way, an or- a planned, intentional, urgent way. If you were with us last week, I think it was stark for us to look at that amazing scene on the, s- the side of the sea there, the feeding of the thousands out of nothing. This is that same day. This has been a super long day. Yesterday was family day at Anderson University. We left before the sun came up. We came home the next day. Last night, you know, in the middle of the night. It was a long day. Families, you know what a long day feels like? A really long day. One thing after the other. That's what the disciples had had. Right? They, they crossed the lake with Jesus and the crowd's already running there to meet with them. And then he teaches all day long. And at the end of the teaching, the disciples are like, everybody's hungry, hangry. Let's all go home. Send them away. And then Jesus says, actually, boys, why don't let's, let you help me distribute this? And we looked at all the miracle last week, but think about how exhausting the distribution of the food would have been. And then we read that Jesus immediately ended the evening. He abruptly ended it. We have to ask the question, why did he abruptly send the disciples out? Well, as we looked at last week in the Gospel of John, John chapter 6, John tells us what the flavor of the crowd was that day. You had a scene where after he fed the crowd, they tried to take him by force to make him be their king. So you have this zeal among the people. As I read different commentaries this week, a few questions about maybe Jesus made the disciples get in the boat because it was actually physically dangerous. It was that sort of a scene. It erupted that quickly into something that Jesus didn't intend for it to be. Or maybe it wasn't about physical danger. Maybe it was Jesus was trying to protect them from themselves. He knew guys like Peter are in that inner circle and they're going to be super ecstatic and zealous to be a part of a revolution of one kind or another on a shore. Maybe he made them get in the boat because you, you all need to get away from here because you're not going to think the things of my father as it develops all around you. But the text is explicit. He made them get into the boat to then go to the other side. And we read that he by himself dismissed the crowds. It's worthy of imagining what that was like. All by himself, after that fervor, whatever the scene is actually like, all by himself, he gives directives and he dismisses everyone. And we read in verse 22 that Jesus is alone. He's all alone. He goes up to the mountain and he prayed most of the night. We know it was virtually all night because it's not until the fourth watch of the night that he sees the disciples out on the boat. The Gospel of Mark says he could see them. Assuming it's late in the fourth watch of the night, it's around dawn. He can actually see them out there. And what this is telling us is that Jesus has been praying functionally all night. It's one of those moments we can imagine the intimacy that he's forever had with his father. That's what he talks about in John 17, that beautiful prayer. Father, we've, we've, we've shared each other's glory and we've known each other deeply from forever. While Matthew doesn't give us very many examples of Jesus sneaking away to pray, if you kind of patch all the Gospels together, you realize how frequently Jesus would do this. The Gospel of Mark, it happens three or four times and it's always at night. 
And what we begin to see as a pattern among these prayer times is it's almost always when there's a critical moment in Jesus' ministry. Some, it could be a heightened moment of conflict, but it's something that has put Jesus in a place of intensity where he, he, he goes away by himself to pray to his Father. I mean, Jesus is certainly exhausted here, but we shouldn't think he's just sneaking away to be refueled with his relationship with his Father. There's something more going on here, and I would say to you that Jesus sees a, a crowd of people who want to dictate his purposes and not the other way around. And he goes to be with his father, not to recalibrate as though he has lost his true north, but because he knows why he came. And the others that are hearing him and receiving his miracles, they don't see it. And so Jesus prays all night long, but then we realize that as he's praying to the Father, the disciples have been struggling all night long. Think about how exhausting their day would have been. Right? Not only just they, they sailed over in the morning and the teaching all day long, the distribution of food, but then have you ever had a moment of incredible intensity where your adrenaline ran really high? How, what's the crash like after that? Right? These guys had to be so exhausted. And while Jesus is alone praying, we read that they are making no progress as they seek to go to the other side of the lake. They've been rowing all night. And that's when we read in verse 25. Jesus came to them. It's different than when we saw Jesus calm the water when he was in the boat with them. We don't get the image of it being a storm. It's just a headwind. And they're exhausted. And Jesus comes to them walking on the water and they saw it or they saw him and they were absolutely terrified. One of the patterns as we read the Bible, especially the, read, read these different gospel scenes, is that we have a tendency, I think, to want to just you know let go and let God and if God would just come and show up in my life, it would be so comforting and so peaceful and I just would have some calm from God. But if you look in the New Testament, in the Gospels, Almost always when Jesus showed up and revealed his glory, it, there was not instant calm. There was more terror. There was more fear. And so it, it appears they don't know who he is, but what we see in consistent with that pattern is they are terrified and they never have it register at first. This is the one we just saw make a massive meal out of nothing. This is the one we've seen raise a dead girl. This is the one that we've seen heal the blind. They say it's a ghost. That's not a theological statement. It's the only place in the New Testament that word is used. It is a natural, instinctive reaction. It's not a ghost. It's the God of all creation walking on the sea that he has made. It's enjoyable to study, I would say, uh, liberal 19th century theology that tries to find naturalistic explanations for what Jesus did supernaturally. We, we looked at some of the options last week for the feeding of the 5,000. But let me just give you some options that scholarship has thought of when trying to find an explanation that would explain how this could have happened. In 1910, Albert Schweitzer wrote a very, a very well-known book, The Quest of the Historical Jesus. And Schweitzer goes through options for this particular miracle. And here's two I will share with you. He says, well, I think it was potentially an optical illusion, right? Jesus is actually walking on the shore, but at dawn, as the disciples look out, it sure looked like he was walking on the water. And if that's not a satisfactory solution, because it does appear that he was a lot closer than that, well, another option is Jesus found a sandbar. That could happen. Parents, you know that it's been terrifying when you're like, how in the world are the kids out that far in the water? Oh, it's just a sandbar. That's all. They're not walking on water. Just a sandbar. Well, maybe that's it here. 
Well, in 2006, the Journal of Paleolimnology, which some of you probably have in your bathroom reading material, um, uh, paleolimnology apparently is the discipline of reconstructing environments of inland waters, right? A, a report came out with scientific research that, that did say that based on climate and area, perhaps a rare set of weather events created four to six inches of ice on the lake. That's amazing. And I would tell you, as we read and study the word of God about the son of God, we would say no, according to the word, even using the Greek propositions here, Jesus walked on, upon, or on top of the water. That's what that preposition can possibly, those are your options. He walked on, upon, or on top of the water. But, but the Bible makes it even more glorious that so we don't miss the point. Job said this about God. Listen to what Job says in Job chapter 9. He says, my God, the creator and redeemer, he treads upon the waves of the sea. And when he passes by me, I cannot see him. That's like prophecy almost, isn't it? Poetic prophecy. When he treads on the water, he passes by me and I can't see him. Maybe it should make us think of Mark's version of this account. Listen to what Mark says in Mark chapter 6, verse 48. Mark said, Jesus that night seemed to be passing by the disciples. The same phrase as Job uses in Job 9. He was passing by, walking on the water. This should make us think of Exodus 33 when Moses asked God if he could see God's glory. And God says, you can't see my face and my glory and live. But God was gracious enough to pass by Moses and give him a sense of his glory. It's the language we have here in the Gospel of Mark's rendition, of course. But here's what is in this text. It's in the other Gospels as well. Jesus, when he speaks... You see what he calls himself? He says, it is I. In Greek, that's ego a me. I am. You talk about something that should ring a bell as we study the scriptures. These are the exact same words, the, the Greek of the Hebrew, that are in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. Remember when Moses was sent to the Israelites and he says, God, I, I know that you're going to rescue them, but when you send me, who do I tell them sent me? And they're not going to believe me. And what did the Lord say? Tell them I am has sent you. That's what we have here, I am. And as we look in the Gospels and we see when Jesus would use this word, the Gospel of John intentionally has all these I am statements, but think about the power that's embedded in those words. I think my favorite use of the I am statement is John 18 verse 16, or verse 6, excuse me. Jesus is arrested in the garden. Judas leads his arresters to him, and they look at him and they say, are you Jesus of Nazareth? And he says, it is I. I am. You know what happens as soon as he says that? All who heard him, boom, they fall over. This is God in the flesh, walking on water, using the very words that God used with relates the Exodus. I am. Matthew and the other Gospels with this story, they're, they're, they're positioning and using words in such a way to say God in the flesh has come to bring the kingdom of heaven down to earth. We read that immediately Jesus spoke to them and he comforted them. So now we have Jesus in comfort. He says, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. So the first thing Jesus does when he's unbound by gravity is he comforts the fear of his disciples who are in a predicament. I was reading in one commentator that, that said this. That it's not like Jesus does these miracles for their own sake. 
Each of these miracles over nature are a practical response to a difficult situation. Let me translate that. It's not like Jesus looked out and said, well, I've had fun with the boys for long enough. I'm going to freak them out. And they, they're ready to see me in all my, this is going to be like a party trick. No, Jesus isn't a magician. He wasn't waiting till that right time where he could surprise the disciples with who he really was. No, they're actually in a predicament of exhaustion and in need of comfort. It's a miracle for their care. I would say to you that there may be times in your life where you're tempted to say, if God would just prove to me that he's God and do a certain type of thing, then I'd be really convinced. When God has revealed himself through his word and he shows up and comforts us with his word. And so Jesus says, take heart. Bill, you were talking about the battle that we're in and leading us through worship earlier. I think we're in a battle. Some of you, you're, you're, you're looking at me right now saying, you have no idea the battle in my heart and in my home. No idea. I think this is sweet, soft-sounding language when I want raw language. He looks at these tough guy fishermen and he's like, take heart, boys. Doesn't seem strong enough, but what is he doing? He's talking to the same hearts that didn't believe that he could do anything with the bread. He's taking the same hearts that might have wanted him to be a nationalistic hero. And he just says, no, what you really need is to understand who I am as I address the needs of your heart. Sailors, boys, it's me. Do not be afraid. You think they immediately weren't afraid? Matthew doesn't say much there, but the Gospel of Mark says that they were utterly astounded for they did not understand about the loaves. They still didn't know who he was. I think Mark's implying that if they would have had a category for what he did to bring that meal out of nothing, they might have had a category that it's him walking on the water. But I think it begs the question for all of us that there is no category that Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, can fit in. He is the creator. Man, how hard is life if you have put Jesus in a category of the one you worship on Sundays, but the rest of your life, you've got these other categories and he's not in those. No, there is no category that we can put him. He's over all, above all. He holds all things together. If they would have understood about the loaves, they might have understood about the walking on water. But they weren't totally unaware. Look at where our text goes. And by the way, the Gospel of Matthew is the only Gospel that has Peter walking on water. The other Gospels don't have that. But Peter understood enough. Verse 28, Lord, if it's you, command me to walk on water. There's different types of conditional phrases in the Greek New Testament. This is one of the types that is not saying, well, Jesus, I'm not sure if you really are who I think you are. That's not the kind of conditional this is. This is a conditional word. Peter's basically saying, since it is you. Like I've heard you say, I am. Since it's you, you tell me to walk out of this boat and onto the water and I'll come. I'll get in the wheelbarrow. Charles Blondin was his name, and it was 1859. Do you believe I can carry a person across the Niagara Falls in this wheelbarrow? Yeah. Who wants to get in? Peter hears Jesus say, come. And he got out of the boat and walked upon the water to Jesus. What is beautiful to me, is he asked Jesus for a word before he just does it. 
It's how much trust, Peter. He's seen the power of Jesus, who we know is the word of God in the flesh. Jesus, if you say for me to come to you, if you command me to come, I will come, for you would only command me to do that which you've given me power to do. And what I'm asking you to command me to do, I have no power to do in and of myself. It's very important that the word comes first. But here's the application for us. Realize that Peter asked Jesus to, do some, to command him to do something that will bring extreme fear and immediate danger. Realize that. Fear, danger, discomfort. He's asking for a word to obey something that will produce those realities. I want to ask you, what have you seen God declare in his word that you need to apply in a situation and you know that in the application of it, you are in a greater place of risk? or of uncomfortability, or of danger. And it's in the word that you know the kind of husband or father you need to be, and in doing so, you're going to have to repent, and there's risk of exposure. That's just one small example. I haven't really told the church this much because it happened very fast, but I have a situation that I get to go through this week, an opportunity, that I, I might look back and say that was one of the greatest things I ever got to do. In the middle of the night, on Wednesday night and Thursday night, I've been asked to do a preaching workshop to house church pastors in mainland China who are unable to gather unless they're going to be in the government-monitored government church. House church pastors who know that they're not even to have a Bible who know that their neighbors have been asked by the government to watch them and if they live next to a Christian to report who that Christian is to the government. And I just got a call a couple weeks ago saying, hey, Jim, 17 other people fell through and we were wondering if you would be interested in talking to these Chinese pastors about how to preach Christ from Old Testament prophets and they're going to use the book of Amos. Would you do that? Challenge is, Jim, your instructions, one of them is going to be at 1.15 in the morning your time. That's uncomfortable. But they're going to risk far more to even be on a Zoom call. How they do that with the security, I don't know. I ask you to pray for that. Let me ask you, when is the last time that you've been asked by God, or you ask God to give you guidance in his word to do something that you know will put you in a place of immediate risk or of discomfort? And one of the things that just shot out of my mouth in the first service, I've had more than one father give an example, not here in, Pen in Tennessee, in Pennsylvania, who's looked to me and asked me to talk to their children about sexuality because they are afraid to do it. It's too hard. I don't want to talk about pornography. I don't want to talk about the sexual culture around us. Will you do it for me? Are, are you unwilling to step out of the boat and to do that which is hard? I think there's so much here for us. And let me say it, it's not always about danger. Look at this. Peter asked Jesus to command him to do something that he has no ability to, to do. He can't keep himself afloat. Maybe that's a phrase you want to just rest with. What are you doing right now that you cannot keep yourself afloat in? I don't know what it is. Obedience? Maybe you say, we, we hardly have any pennies to pinch together. We're going to give tithes and offerings and trust that God owns everything. Maybe it's a conversation at work with someone that you need to tell them what you believe truth is because of your silence, they assume that you believe the same thing they believe and you don't. 
And you talk to your discipleship group or you talk to your family and you say, what do I do? Well, maybe it's time to say, there's a whole other grid of truth that presents a different reality that requires we have a merciful God. I don't don't know what it is, but it's a wonder here that Peter asked for a word to do something that's going to put him at risk. Let's carry on. You ever wonder how long Peter lasted? The Bible doesn't tell us. Man, was it like one step, two steps? We know he walked, and we know they had to walk back to the boat. But we read in verse 30 that Peter saw the wind. And when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and he began to sink, and he cried out, Lord, save me. And there's the word, immediately he was rescued. But this surprising text, I I pose to you the biggest surprise, isn't actually that Jesus is God and can walk on water. It isn't that Jesus, can, with his word of power, can command Peter to walk on water. It's the fact that after Peter does, as soon as he begins to doubt, Jesus rebukes him for his tiny faith. That is a shocking thing in this text. What I hear when Jesus says, oh, you have little faith, why did you doubt? What I hear is, hey, tiny faith, just believe more. And I say, I don't understand because he just walked on water to his Savior. How is that little faith? Maybe it begs the question that I have no idea, and maybe we have no idea, about what faith can produce the kind of power to obey God and serve him. For in chapter 17, Jesus is going to say, if you have faith the side of a mustard seed, like, tell Buffalo Mountain to move. Maybe we don't have any idea the kind of power that our Savior has given us if we would believe more and doubt less. But here's why this is so challenging, because it tells us that fear obstructs faith. So let's talk about this super briefly, but maybe clearly. Understand here, fear in our circumstances increases as faith in the word of God decreases. That's what's on display here. Fear in our circumstances will increase as faith in the word of God decreases. The other thing I think we see here is Peter doesn't deny Jesus. He's just stepped out of the boat. He knows he's the I am. But we read that he's rebuked for his doubt. What is doubt then? I think this is doubt. Let me give us a definition. Maybe it'll help you. Doubt is practical hesitation when there is a conflict between the evidence of our circumstances and the word of God. Doubt is practical hesitation when there is a conflict between the evidence of our circumstances and the word of God. And it is so challenging that Jesus looks to Peter and says, hey, tiny faith, stop looking at your circumstances. What circumstances do you fixate most on? You know. And when you fixate on those circumstances, you tell me what's happened in those moments of faith or faithlessness. And what hits me so difficult in this is Peter will later say, I left everything to follow you. We all did. You ever talk? I mean, we have a missionary here with us today. Corey and I, I remember we moved up to Pennsylvania. We'll move our family to a place where we have no family. Lord, if you want us to plant a church, we'll do it. And I know some of you, you've worked really hard to have a Christian business model and you give yourself to these things strategically because you're a believer and you say, I want to do something that is for the kingdom. But then let me ask you, how fast in certain moments of trial does your doubt descend? And it's really not about the fact that God called you to be a missionary and you moved overseas or wherever you went, San Salvador. It's in those little moments. 
your doubt crowds the faith of the God for whom you've said, I'll do anything to follow you. That's where this text, I think, needs to intersect us. Because Peter is with the Lord who's over all creation. He doesn't need to doubt. And we don't need to doubt. And so here's where we'll close up. There's just a few last things because I want to tell the whole story. Look in verse 32. Jesus, of course, Peter reaches out. Jesus reaches out and grabs him. Think about how close he was to the God of all glory. And they, they walk on water back to the boat. And the minute he gets in, calm. They didn't even, Jesus doesn't say a word. Last time he rebuked the sea. This time they just get in the boat. And it all stops. And then we read that those who were in the boat worshipped him as the son of God. This is going to be our final tipping point for this that leads us into the Lord's Supper. This is the first time in the Gospel of Matthew the disciples declared Jesus to be the Son of God. Before this moment, do you know who declares Jesus to be the Son of God? The demons and Satan in mockery. After this point, do you know what title Jesus is going to often either be called in worship or have people wrestle with? Son of God. Chapter 16, verse 16, Peter's, when Jesus says, who does everyone say that I am? And who do you say that I am? Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. In chapter 26, the high priest, when Jesus is on trial, is going to say, hey, Jesus, tell us who you are. Are you the son of God? In chapter 27, the scoffers at the cross are going to say, if you're the son of God, like do something about this, prove it. And then after Jesus died at the end of Matthew 27, those who see darkness descend on daylight, what do they say? Truly, this was the Son of God. The way I want to close this up is this text just presents us who Jesus is. And I know I've gone long, sorry. But I want to make sure I include this. You think Peter was embarrassed? You ever had a story told about you after it's happened and every time someone else embellishes it worse each time? You're just like, ah, I hate that that's true about me. And you stop defending what the real details were and you just realize I have nothing to say here. I don't think Peter was embarrassed at all. Unless it was all about Peter. But with every time Jesus came and held him up, it became less and less about Peter and more and more about who Jesus, the Son of God, is. And when Peter, one day with us in glory, says, let me tell you all the times Jesus held me up, what is the way that Peter and you and I have been held up by the God of compassion and power? He took our sin on his cross and he was raised up so that he could raise us up. Christian, do you know that Jesus is the son of God and are you amazed at it? Is it over every category? And has it led you to worship? The next scene, the next morning, Jesus shows up on the shore on the other side and he's known for who he is and what he can do. And those that didn't get Peter's perspective, they still knew maybe if we just touch his garment, we'll be healed. And even that happened. There is no category that Jesus of Nazareth can be put in. And so as you take the Lord's Supper now, let me ask you to take it in the spirit of worship. And repentance, asking for God to show you your doubts.
and be mindful again of what he's accomplished for you in Christ. Lord, would you receive us now as we take the Lord's Supper? Affirm our faith. Would we not doubt? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.